and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. This is episode two of the podcast, and we will continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John, taught by the rector of St. Bartholomew's, Father Arthur Ward. In this episode, Father Ward concludes his overview of John's Gospel, answers some questions asked by those in attendance, and unpacks the first five verses of chapter one. We want to thank you for listening, and we pray you are blessed by what you're about to hear as we turn it over now to Father Ward. John uses a framework that is unique to John that uh, is not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Recall I said that there's a reason why they're called the synoptics. Synoptic means through a similar lens. So that's why Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar. Just open them up and start reading. You'll find that. John's different. John uses a framework of sevens. And he begins by, first of all, stating who Jesus is in the prologue, which we will close up our study by looking at the first five verses of John 1. But then he starts to have Jesus get into conversations with those who become his disciples, with others. Think of the uh, Nicodemus, one of the Sanhedrin. Think of the Samaritan woman at the well. Think of the nobleman. Think of whose son was cured. Think of the man who was paralytic. Think of Mary and Martha. Think of even Pontius Pilate. There's these conversations, these interpersonal relations, uh, uh, relational uh, uh, times that not only are helpful for us to show the compassion and love of Jesus, but also John puts them in there to show the response to that, the response of either unbelief or belief. And so we see this that part of the plot line that there is this example of belief and unbelief and how as belief increases and unbelief increases, there's this tension that comes to a head with Jesus' arrest, his death, and then his, cru- or his crucifixion. But then there's that vindication. The climax is not Jesus' death. The climax is Jesus' resurrection. And that's so important. So everything leads to that point, but the process of how we get there is different from the other Gospels. The other Gospels gives us more of Jesus' teachings to the multitudes, the parables. It gives us more miracles. John, however, just gives us seven sevens, basically. And the first of these sevens are what he calls the signs. He uses the term, the Greek term, Simeon, um, to highlight the miracles as signs. And you've heard me preach this many times over the years. What's significant about a sign? The sign is not most significant. The sign simply points to something that's greater. In fact, we call sacraments an outward invisible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. What's more important, the outward invisible or the inward? The inward is more important than the outward invisible, right? The sign simply points to something greater than itself. But when it's used in this context, in the Greek, the word, it means some significant event, boom, from heaven that God does, but that points us to God. And so what John does is he uses seven miracles of Jesus that point us not to the fact that Jesus has supernatural powers, but points us to the fact that Jesus indeed is the Son of God, that he is God in human flesh. Because each miracle that John includes is also paralleled with a teaching or an I am statement. And there are also seven I am statements. So let's look at these signs first. The first miracle that's recorded in John 
is Jesus turning the water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. What's the second? The nobleman's son healed in Cana. What's the third? The Sabbath healing of a paralytic in Jerusalem. What's the fourth? The feeding of the 5,000. What's the fifth? Jesus walks on the water. What's the sixth? The healing of a man born blind. What's the seventh? The raising of Lazarus from the dead. These are the seven signs, the seven miracles that are included in John's gospel. And if you remember, at the end of his gospel, he says, these are just, these have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the son, but there are many more that happened that I just didn't include. So John is strategic. And it's interesting, but of course, the greatest sign of who Jesus is, is his resurrection. Uh, That could be almost considered an eighth sign, but that's kind of the sign of signs. In fact, the first 12 chapters of John's gospel often are referred to as the book of signs. Scholars, some scholars have divided John into two parts. The first part being the book of signs, dealing with the first 12 chapters, and the last part, dealing with chapters 13 through 21, the book of glory. Because it's from that point, almost half of John deals with Jesus, and the day before, uh, as he goes into the, um, the holy city, for Passover, and he celebrates the Last Supper with his disciples, and he gives them his final teaching, and then he goes to his death. Uh, That's a big part of John, John's gospel. All right, the seven I am statements. Jesus, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of heaven. I am the gate, the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. So this is part of the framework, again, John uses. John is using statements that Jesus said about himself, and each statement identifies Jesus as God. You think about this. When Jesus says, I am the light of the world, no prophet can say that. They can say that, but that's ridiculous. Especially once we read John 1 through 5, you can see the, uh, the affirmation of Jesus being the light as the essence of life in that statement. I am the bread of heaven. Remember, Jesus said, if you eat my bread, this bread you ate, but your fathers died, right? It wasn't for spiritual life. Jesus is the bread that gives us eternal life. He just is. I am. I am the door, the gate, the the means through which we have to go to have eternal life and to have abundant life. I'm the resurrection and the life. Not just abundant life and eternal life, but the body itself. Only Jesus has the power to resurrect the body. And then Jesus, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, the way, the truth, the life, again, repetition. He's the embodiment of truth. And then you add to that, no one comes to the Father except through me. So he is the sole means of that salvation. He isn't just a means, as a lot of people like to say, and even people in the church like to say, that, oh, Jesus is a way. He's a truth. He is a life. No, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And then finally, I'm the true vine. He is basically saying, just as a vine gives life to the branches, so too I'm going to give life to you, but you have to abide in the vine if you're going to have life. So these are the, uh, the, 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 this is the framework. There's also, I have a whole bunch of others that you can just look at briefly. We don't have time to unpack them, but you can do that on your own. You can see other uh, sevens uh, that uh, that John includes in his uh, breakdown of the gospel. There's seven divine titles that John Uh, highlights that are said of Jesus by others and by Jesus himself. There's seven interpersonal conversations and belief responses. I kind of already highlighted those. 
There's seven witnesses of Christ's divinity. There's seven equalities of Jesus with God the Father. When we uh, get into John chapter 5, we'll unpack those. There's seven discourses in the first half, the book of signs. That would be discourses, a term for teachings about spiritual life and walking uh, with the Son. And so there you have kind of John's framework, his purpose to stimulate belief, to show us what it means to follow Jesus, to show that there's a conflict and why Jesus had to die. Jesus died because of what? Yes, sin, but also because of unbelief. Because people didn't believe who he was, said he was. And then there were those who might thought he might have been, but didn't want to believe him. And that's what you have today, right? When you go out there, there's going to be two responses. People aren't going to believe in him, aren't going to put their faith in him because they don't really believe he is who he said he is. Or people are going to, even if he's believed, even if they know he is who he said he is, they're still going to rebel. Did you know that? There are some people out there that are so obstinate that they'll say, I don't care, I'm not going to believe. Those are the two types of responses, ultimately. The first one has a little more understanding, you know? The second one is akin to almost blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Very serious. Okay, before we uh, go to John, the first, we'll just be looking at the first five verses tonight because we don't have time, but I needed to give you the, the foundation. If we're going to go through a book, a study of Gospel of John, we need to have a good overview, understanding the whole book and how it's put together and why it was written. So before we go into the first five verses, any questions? Any questions so far? Yes, Linda. Is John's gospel the most um, declarative, the most clear about who Christ is? Yes. I mean, the others are very clear. But the others are more uh, from a standpoint of looking at the event, looking at the teaching, and then saying it's implicit that I should say there are significant examples in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John where it's clear that Jesus is, but what John does is he articulates it more in depth, so more fully. Right. I don't know. No, I wouldn't say he maybe he has necessarily developed the argument. I would say that the argument was already there. He already witnessed it. He's simply putting it together so that people uh, know it. And he decided to use sevens because that's the number of completion. It's kind of the drive that point home. Uh, and I think it's a literary device that he uses. I mean, I would have to do further study. I'm sure others have done more in-depth study in terms of the significance of John using all the sevens. It's very interesting, even though when the uh, Bible was originally written, the various manuscripts, it's very interesting that the, um, there were no breakdown of chapters and verses by numbers, but John's gospel happens to be the only book in the New Testament that has 21 chapters. And you think of 21, three sevens, right? So anyway, that's just an aside that obviously was not John's intention, but it just so happens. Yes? Oh, hi. Thanks, Hi. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't quite formed the question, but the question is. Okay. Now, um, it says, it appears that he wrote his gospel primarily for Gentile believers and those who were interested in learning. 
Right. More about who did this. Mm-hmm. So it's written for primary Gentile, Gentile believers. Doesn't mean it wasn't written for Jews also. I understand. The right. question I'm getting at, because I'm thinking about how the children bred. So the children mm-hmm. bred, that's the Jewish people, right? I'm sorry? The yeah. Jewish bread. It was a scripture about the Jewish bread. When Jesus healed somebody and the disciples were puzzled about it, like, why are you healing that person? Is like not a Jew? A non-Jewish believer. Okay, sure. Okay. Yes. So, Gentile. That's a category of people. Oh, good question. Gentiles. Gentiles is the term for someone who is not Jewish, someone who has not been born Jewish, who is not part of the Jewish faith. That's a Gentile. So Jews were the people called by God to be a light to the Gentiles. So technically, all of us are Gentiles. Okay. Now, the Samaritan woman. Is she a Gentile too? Are the Samaritans, that's a very good question. Are the Samaritans Gentiles too? Technically, no. Samaritans are the descendants of the northern kingdom of Israel, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, and the peoples who came in after they were conquered by the Assyrian Empire in the 8th century BC, okay? So the Samaritans had Jewish or had uh, similar beliefs, but different. They were intermixed with pagans, and so the Jews looked down on the Samaritans. So the Samaritans are the descendants of the northern kingdom of Israel, and the Jews are the descendants of the southern kingdom, Judah. Hence, Jews from the tribe Judah, and the kingdom Judah. That's where we get the term Jew. So, just to go back, you had the Hebrews in Egypt who became the Israelites, unified kingdom of Israel. Israel divided into two countries, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel was overtaken by Assyria. Those people intermingled with the Assyrians and the religion got watered down. And then the Jews, the people from Judah, survived. They were the ones who were attacked by Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. They were the ones who were taken into exile to Babylon and then Persia and then brought back to Jerusalem and Judah. Judah then became a Roman province, Judea. And so there you have it, Judea, Samaria. And then Galilee was technically Jewish, but it was a little... Can you help me out on that, Father Tebow, with Galilee a little bit? Give me a little more uh, on the Galilee part, but uh, all right. So, yes, I didn't say, yes, 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 all right, okay, anyway. I mean, I think the Samaritans were worse than Gentiles. In the Jewish, thank you, in the Jewish mindset, that's right, yes, that the Jews considered the Samaritans the scum of the earth. That's why it's so significant that Jesus comes, not only the bridge between Gentile and Jew, but between Jew and Samaritan. And why I preached about him six weeks ago, how Jesus is the only one who can truly tear down the walls that divide humanity and make us one people. No other religion, no other philosophy, no other thing can do it except for Jesus. And that's why we have that wonderful vision and revelation that there'll be people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation worshiping before the throne of God. What, how are we doing on time? What time is it? Quarter to eight? That's awesome. We're doing perfect. All right. Yes, Brenda. 
Yeah, business. That's inferred. That would be inferred by looking at the accounts in Matthew and Mark and the calling of the disciples, how they immediately left Jesus. Or I'm sorry, they immediately left their nets and followed Jesus. You'd have to do a, a parallel study of the Gospels to come to that conclusion. So that is outside the scope of tonight's study. But if you want us, we can look. I'd encourage you to do some research on your own, but if you want me to, I can, I can further unpack that. Uh, yes. You mentioned that the book, because you know, John is a, a, a gospel book. Right. And within that gospel book, there's certain chapters that talk about the glory, and you said 20, chapter 20. Oh, no, no, that's a good question. No. Scholars, now again, this is scholars. This oh. isn't John. But scholars like to call the first 12 the first half of John's Gospel, the book of signs, because there you've got the seven signs, the seven miracles. And then they call the second half the book of glory, not because it's, re I mean, they all reflect the glory of Jesus, right? right sure. But his glory is ultimately reflected in his death and resurrection, because the second half leads us right to, it, it picks up right the night before uh, Jesus died, Thursday night, John 13, all the way through, 20 is, is his time he spent with the disciples, then his arrest, his being brought before Pilate and the Sanhedrin, and then, of course, his crucifixion. Any other questions? There was, I think, one more hand I saw. Yes? No? Okay. Let's open up your Bibles to John 1, verses 1 through 5, and I'm going to unpack these uh, five key verses. Uh, they're in your notes here, but I, I want us to open up the Bible and look right directly at John 1. So we have in the beginning. Now, where else do we have in the beginning in the Bible, right? Genesis 1. It's the only other time. In the beginning. So what John is doing is he's taking us right back. But he's actually taking us back before creation itself. In the beginning was the word. That word was is very significant. Because that means that the word already was when the beginning of time and space came into being. Remember in Genesis 1.1 it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And God said, he spoke the word, right? Let there be light, and there was light. So you can see the parallel. In the beginning was the word, let there be light, and there was light. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Now that seems kind of strange, right? I mean, it doesn't seem, how can that be? Two and one, one and two. But that's the whole point. What John is saying is that there is the reality of God but there's also this reality of the Word, which is also God. He was already in the beginning with God, but he also is God. And what John does is he uses the Greek word logos for word. And in the Greek thinking, logos meant the mind, the, the wisdom, the, the rationale of something. It was uh, impersonal but it was kind of like the idea of something. So like we use words, right? Similar in the English. And words are simply representations of ideas, representations of events, of things. They represent something. And so it's similar in the Greek, but it was a little more philosophical. Now in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for word that was used Whenever we have the word of God in the Old Testament, 
always referred to anything that God did to disclose himself to his people. Now, you've heard me preach this many times over the years. So the bar, which is, that's how you pronounce it in the Hebrew, meant anything that God did to show himself. So whether it was a miracle, whether it was a word, an audible word from the Lord, whether it was the parting of the Red Sea, a healing, an angelic visitation, a vision, a dream, that is called a word from the Lord. And so what John does is he takes the Hebrew concept of word and he combines it with the Greek concept of word because remember he is trying to preach, he's trying to evangelize the Gentiles as well as the Jews. He puts it together and he says this logos, this word, it's more than just a word. It's more than just an idea. It's an actual reality of that which it represents. That's why it's so wow. That's what's being said in that simple statement. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But there's more. Look what he says then. He was in the beginning with God, so it's a he. Now, not he in the sense of necessarily in the, in the physical sense, but the significance of he is that this Word is not merely a force. It is a person. He, not it, was in the beginning with God. And all things came into being through him. So he is not only the actual reality of God, he is the means through which everything came into being. That's pretty amazing. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. What I love about the scriptures is, I don't know if you've noticed this, but even Jesus would do it when he would teach. Certainly the writers would do it when they would write. And God, in the Old Testament, would do it as well, and that is repetition. God always would repeat something a second and even sometimes a third time because he knows that we are dunderheads. He knows <laughs> that people are like, well, did he really say that? Does he really mean that? God says, yeah, I do. Wake up. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, this is awesome. First of all, do you remember when I said the significance of Jesus saying, I am the light of the world? Well, when he says, I am the light of the world, it brings us right back to this verse. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, when you think about this, you cannot have life without light. If you do not have the sun, right, everything's going to die. If we do not have the lights on here, we could not do what we want to do. Even a blind person can't do anything unless the blind person is being helped by people who can see. We cannot live apart from light. Hence, the word is called the light. Because light and life go hand in hand. They are both necessary and they both emanate from the word himself. And that's why the metaphor, it's a great metaphor, but spiritual, oh, and by the way, spiritually and physically, it's true, right? Spiritually, if I don't have the light of God, I'm lost. Just as if I don't have the physical light, I'm lost. But uh, getting back to the metaphor, the thing about darkness is, Darkness can never overcome light. 
Think about being in outside. If you get that candle lit, if you get a light source, the dark is dissipated. It's impossible. Darkness only is present if there is no light present. That's why if people see the light of God in the distance and only have a kind of a, a little bit of a knowledge, God is always asking people to seek after him. James writes, draw close to God and he'll draw near to God and he'll draw close to you. Jesus says, seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be Ask and it'll be open to you. I'm telling you, when I go out and I talk to people about the faith, I can tell whether or not, something's really, whether or not someone's really seeking or they're not. And who's to blame? God? So if you're in a, and you've heard me use this analogy when I've been preaching, if you're in a tunnel and you see a light, you have a choice. If you go closer to that light, you start seeking after that light, it's going to get brighter. You're going to see more clearly. But if you decide to turn around and go the other direction, the light that you had, the little light you had is gone. It's the same way. And isn't it interesting that John writes, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, if you look at the bottom of the page, that Greek word, comprehend, I don't know why the translators use comprehend. I think it's because they're trying to be a little bit more too specific, uh, maybe trying to be faithful to the Greek word. But notice that it says here that that Greek word can also be translated overcome. And the reason why you've got this comprehend part is that what it literally means in the Greek is to make it your own, to be able to control it, to be able to master it. And so what John is saying is that the darkness cannot master the light. The darkness cannot conquer the light. The darkness cannot overcome the light. It cannot stand. It'll be driven away. And that's exactly what Jesus does to darkness. So with that, there's the first five verses and it's why. Next slide. We say in the Nicene Creed every Sunday, we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made. And I guess I did make a mistake, and that is, turn right back to John 1, I should, because we're going to look at this in more detail next week. But so who is this word? How do we know it's Jesus? Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now there are two concepts, grace and truth, which while somewhat highlighted in the Hebrew Scriptures in our Old Testament, are now fully disclosed in the New Testament in the person of Jesus. John testified, that would be John the Baptist, about him and cried out saying, this is, was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Remember, John the Baptist and Jesus were first cousins. John the Baptist was born before Jesus, and yet John the Baptist says that he existed before me. That would be an example, Linda, of an implicit demonstration of Jesus' deity rather than an explicit one. An explicit one would be just a statement. But we can imply from there that John is highlighting his divinity. Verse 16, For the fullness, for of his fullness we have all received, there's that word, received, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized 
through Jesus Christ. The law is good, but the law does not bestow grace. The law shows us we have a problem. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has revealed him. He has shown him. So the Son shows us the Father. But the Son is one with the Father, and the Son is co-eternal with the Father. Hence the creeds. And there you have a good foundation for understanding the Gospel of John as well as the unpacking of the first five verses. Next week we will continue by looking at the rest of John chapter 1. Thank you for coming out. Do you have any questions? What time is it? So if people need to leave, they can. Yes. Two minutes after? Okay, let me close with prayer. And then if those who want to go, they can. And then those who want to stay for questions, they can. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your truth, for your love, for your grace, all that have been embodied in your son, Jesus. And we just thank you, Lord, that you have called us, that we have been chosen by you to be your light, to reflect Jesus, and that we know these things. Help us not to take them for granted. Help, them, help us to grow deeper in you. Help us to, to uh, focus on these uh, wonderful uh, truths and, and, and receive your wisdom in Jesus so that we can do battle with what's going on in this world, so that we can fight the good fight so that we can let others know that there is a way that leads to life and peace and happiness, and that way is Jesus. So help us to do that, Lord, and and help all those who wanted to come tonight, but because of other things got in the way. Pray that more people will be coming each and every Wednesday night. May you be glorified, and may Jesus be our light always. In his name we pray. Amen. been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. For more information about the church, including a list of our service times, please visit our website at www.stbartston.org. Again, that's www.stbartston.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating or a positive review. Both will help in reaching more people with this podcast. If you're on Facebook and tried searching for the podcast page with the information we gave you in the previous episode, we would like to apologize for giving the wrong information. The correct address is facebook.com slash transforminglivestogetherpodcast. Again, that's facebook.com slash transforming lives together podcast please head on over there we guarantee you will find it and give us a like and we hope you will tune in next time as we continue with life's meaning and purpose an in-depth study of the gospel of john until then we leave you with these verses from paul's letter to titus at one time we too were foolish disobedient deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life.
God bless.